This is Our American Stories, and today we have on a young man who's gone through a heck of a lot. Andrew McCaffrey is a senior at Western Reserve Academy in Ohio, and in 2011, he was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, a fairly rare type of bone cancer that mostly affects young people. He's here to talk about that and how he's overcome the odds and overcome his cancer. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hey, before we get into your diagnosis, Andrew, can you give us some background on your family life, what life was like for you growing up? Tell us a little bit about your life story. Okay. Um, so kind of an interesting childhood, I guess, growing up. was So my dad is um, in the Army, and he's active duty. And so my childhood, I guess, still now, we move around a lot. And so I spent kind of – I've lived in seven different places um, – few more different homes and so it was a lot of moving around and so I kind of got used to making new friends and kind of getting used to just new things and new surroundings and as a kid I was a really active kid I mean I played four sports consistently and so I kind of just that's kind of a way that I kind of got used to where I was the next time was getting in with different sports teams and getting into that kind of stuff and so I mean really for my brother and my sister and I um, that's really what life was like and for me especially, I found kind of a sanctuary or a refuge in sports, and that was just really what my life revolved around was the activities and athletics. Yeah, and let's face it, the, the best way to bond with people is to dig in and play football with them or basketball or volleyball, and you'll get to know yeah. people real fast. No, for sure. So let's talk about your diagnosis. How old were you? What were the symptoms leading up to it? Did anybody expect anything like this? And what exactly is this form of cancer? Talk about the cancer, too. Those three questions at you. Okay. Well, so I was diagnosed in 2010 uh, when I was 11 years old. And I, it was really the, the last thing I expected, as it usually is for people. Um, so I was, I mean, like I, like I mentioned, I was an active kid. And, and so I had just started a basketball season. And I was on a much more competitive basketball team than I was used to. And so... I started to realize that I kind of was starting to feel some, like, pain and achiness in my right knee. And so my parents and I kind of attributed it just to, you know, it's a more competitive team. And so I'm just putting a little bit more strain on my knee and that kind of thing. And so we didn't really think too much of it, especially because it was the type of pain where I'd be outside running around with my friends and I'd just kind of poke my head in the door and yell, hey, mom, my knee hurts and then run right back out. So she really didn't think anything of it because if I was clearly not giving it much attention that it couldn't be anything too serious. Um, although the pain lingered for a couple of weeks, and it actually, this there was one week where it woke me up twice in the night, and I woke up just in a lot of pain, and I let my mom know. And So my mom has a background. She's a nurse, and so she kind of started to get a little bit worried that this might be something a little bit, like, structurally, a little bit more serious. Um, and so I tagged along with her and my sister to go to a doctor's appointment that my sister had scheduled for uh, shin splints that she was dealing with. And so I went in to just our regular sports medicine doctor and talked to him about it. And, I mean, kind of same thing for him. He figured I just had kind of a developing tendonitis in my knee. He decided to take some precautionary x-rays just in case. And... Later that day, I just I was back at school playing around during our recess time, and I remember our school secretary coming out and telling me that I wasn't allowed to run or jump or anything like that 
for the rest of the day. But being an 11-year-old kid, I didn't really listen, and so I kept doing what I was doing, only to find out the next day that I had to go in for more scans. Uh, I had to go in for a CAT scan and an MRI at the hospital. And then to confirm what I didn't realize yet was osteosarcoma, because after my scans, I was walked down to a part of the hospital that I had never been to. And it's kind of, I look back at it now as kind of a funny story. Um, so my, my mom and dad and I were walking through the hospital following a nurse, and we walked past this sign that I distinctly remember it was a part of the hospital I had never been to, and the sign said pediatric hematology and oncology. And it's, it's really clear for me, and my mom burst into tears. And I looked at her and I said, what's wrong? Thinking this is odd that she's crying all of a sudden, and it just... I didn't think anything had happened, and she looked at me and said I had stepped on her foot and used that as an excuse because she didn't want to tell me yet of what she suspected, I guess, after seeing that sign. And so she used the fact that I, she said I had stepped on her foot as an excuse, and then a few minutes later I was sitting in a doctor's office being told that I had osteosarcoma and I had cancer, and I was just, uh, I thought my life was over, really. I thought everything was ruined. And this uh, disease mostly affects young people because their bones, your bones, are just rapidly growing. Amidst all mm-hmm. of this, what you, you said you were thinking about your future and it was ruined. Was that your immediate thought? Did you think maybe there was a cure? Or were you thinking, my goodness, that's it? And, and what do you mean by that? So do you think you were going to die? Do you think you were going to lose a leg? Did you think what? What did you think? Well, for me, I hadn't really had a direct... Um, no direct connection to cancer. I mean, no one in my immediate family had ever been diagnosed. And so really to me, the word cancer as a disease and just really just as a word had this stigma of like almost immediate death and that there wasn't much to do about it. Um, and so I, I was kind of destroyed and thinking, you know, I'm 11 years old. It's not fair. Why me? Kind of were all the immediate thoughts that came into my head. Um, and, and just, even if there is, like, even if I can come out of this, like, it doesn't matter anyway, because I can't play sports. I can't, I won't be able to run again, that kind of thing. Yeah. There goes your physical life, if not your actual life. And either way, what's the point? And I can only imagine, I can't imagine actually what you were going through at that age. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Andrew McCaffrey, his remarkable story right here on Our American Stories. Cancer affects so many of us, young and old. There's not a family that's not affected. How do we triumph over it? How do we overcome it? More with Andrew after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with Andrew McCaffrey. 
we were just leaving things off with him finding out that he'd been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Andrew, tell us what happens next. How do you proceed? What are the next few months and years like for you? Um, well, so the next, I mean, they kind of told us a few things were going to happen fairly immediately. Um, the doctor explained that I was going to have to have a, a biopsy where they would just make a small incision on my knee and take a small sample of what they believed to be the tumor just to confirm that it was, in fact, osteosarcoma. And then um, assuming that it is, we would proceed with starting chemotherapy and then uh, a few months down the road have to make a decision on what kind of surgery I was looking at to remove the tumor as a whole um, and a good portion of my femur as well. And so you, in the end, you move into high school with a prosthetic leg. What was that mm-hmm. like, having to uh, you know, go through this and realize that in the end you were going to have to you know, be not your full self? What was your quest like to return to the things that you once loved and did? Um, well, it was, it was an interesting kind of journey, I guess, because when I actually chose to have the amputation because it, it was a way for me to get back into sports. Because my initial surgery that I had was a limb salvage surgery where I was able to keep my leg, but I was severely limited activity-wise. And so going into my eighth grade year, I had broken the titanium rod that was running through my femur. And to me, it was really, it, it might sound funny, but to me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because by breaking that rod, it gave me a chance to kind of start over and, and have the amputation that I chose to have which is a modified amputation called rotation plasty, where they actually remove the most of your knee and some of your femur, and they take your foot and ankle and rotate it 180 degrees and and attach it back onto your upper leg so that my ankle functions as my knee. Amazing. Um, So it's it's a radical kind of not very common surgery, but I, I had it in eighth grade and jumped right back into physical therapy trying to get back into sports, and that's been my big goal ever since, and... Um, I mean, it was it was a long kind of tough road, and I'm still I'm not off that road at all. Um, I'm still very on it. I just trying to work to get to where I want to be um, back to. So. And you've rela- it relapsed a second time in 2013, and then relapsed a third time in your sophomore year. Talk about those two relapses and what that was like. This was not a simple this was not a simple road. And as you pointed out, you're still on it. Right. So. I relapsed my seventh grade year and then again my freshman and sophomore year. And, I mean, those are the last things that you want to hear. As a, I mean, as a cancer patient, you finish treatment and you think everything's done and you think you can just move on. But it's really, it's, I mean, it's a hard thing to, to get over. Um, and those relapses are crushing, really. I mean, because like I said, I thought I was getting back to normal. I was starting to make friends. I was getting back to just going to school all the time and being that, I guess, quote, normal kid. And then I got hit with another diagnosis and it was just, it was, it was hard, but I kind of got into a mindset of, you know, it's happening and, and it wouldn't be me if I couldn't handle it. And so it's just something that a mindset can really change. And if I felt that I can kind of get through it and beat this cancer, that I was going to be okay. And I mean, it was tough to get to that point and I couldn't have done it. I mean, without my family and friends, because that's really, I was lucky and I had a great support system. I mean, I have two older siblings that were there every step of the way. And both of my parents were 
always with me, whether spending the nights in the hospital. And because, in my opinion, cancer, it doesn't just affect whoever's diagnosed. It affects everyone who's around you very directly as well. And I, never re- I didn't realize it until I was a little bit older and looking back at it, but my brother and sister were affected almost as much as me. And while they weren't going through treatment or having surgeries, they were having to do stuff on their own because my parents would be with me, and they were having to kind of learn to become very responsible very quickly, probably much earlier than most kids have to. And so it was hard on them. And just I know for them to see their little brother going through so much was was definitely tough. But if it wasn't for them, I don't think I would have been able to make it through what I did and what I've been doing. Well, it's a beautiful thing that you had siblings like that and a family that was able to pull together, Andrew. Uh, you know, you, you chose after the third relapse to not go back on chemo because of how terrible it made you feel. Talk about that decision, Andrew. Well, that is part of the decision for sure. I mean, it's hard to choose to go back on something that's just that bad and the side effects and the, just how it is, is is terrible and I only have bad um, memories of it. And so really deciding to go back was, was a decision that my parents and I both made because, one, there's, there's not much research on osteosarcoma about what to do after a third relapse. And so there really is no set plan. It's kind of up to your discretion and your doctor's discretion. And after talking to my doctor and talking with my parents and the rest of my family, we decided it would be okay to just have the surgery and not go back on treatment. Well, it takes a lot of guts in the end. You were making some of these calls, I think, Andrew, all by yourself in the end. I mean, you had family around you, but in the end, mm-hmm. you're old enough to say, this is what I want, this is how I want to live. And talk about the cancer as as a defining event. There's a quote here from you that said the following, the cancer doesn't define who I am, but it helped me discover who I am. Talk about that. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't think I would be who I am today or, or where I am today in my life if it, I hadn't been diagnosed. And really what I mean by that is just because of cancer and because of this, I guess, I mean, circumstance that I was put in, I was able to kind of put a lot of things into perspective and realize that a lot of things I'd taken for granted shouldn't be taken for granted. And so because of my diagnosis, I, w- I realized a lot of different things, whether it's that putting things into perspective or that there are some things that seem insurmountable that really aren't. And so I'm able to kind of build from this, I guess, courage and strength that I've gained from being a cancer survivor now and a kid who, who beat cancer four times, um, that like, it's nothing's really going to stop me and that I just have to keep pushing forward. Well, I see the pictures and I've seen pictures of you on a surfboard i've seen you a uh, picture mm-hmm. like running i've seen picture you in in a, in a in a football uniform with a helmet and pads yeah uh, so talk about your sporting life because this is what it was all about heck you were willing right. to get an amputation so you could play sports that's a remarkable thing talk about sports mm-hmm. and and how you're doing with that well so recently i've really been able to kind of get back into what i wanted to do um so I'm a, I'm a senior now, and but last year, my junior year, I would say was when I really got back to the point where I was able to play sports, not back to where I wanted to be, but back to a, a level that I was I was at enough of a high level that I could start playing again. And so 
I returned to wrestling actually my freshman year. So I've been wrestling for the past four years. And then I was actually the captain of my wrestling team this year at school. And so that was a great experience. And I returned to the football field um, last year, my junior year, and played last year as well as this year. And then in addition to football and wrestling, I've taken up snowboarding. I love to snowboard. Um, I played a little bit of sled hockey, which is an adaptive hockey. Um, And I'm looking more now into hopefully doing different kind of starting to train and maybe even look forward to different like serious competitions that I could get myself into just because that's, it's what I have a passion for. And, and now that I'm have the opportunity to play sports again and compete like that, I feel like it's something that I, I shouldn't waste. Um, and I really need to take advantage of while I can. Well, last but not least, uh, Andrew, just about a minute here. Uh, some people outside of your family who supported you through all this, and have you been able to help others? Talk about that. Well, so I was really I helped I was helped by a few other kids that I had met that had been diagnosed with this before me, and had gone through some similar things, and they were able to help me a lot by answering questions and that kind of thing. And so now I I love to help other kids that are in this situation be it a terrible situation um i i like to kind of be there so that if they have questions they can ask someone who went through it because i think who better to ask than someone who kind of has a a deep understanding of what they're going through and so i'm involved in a program um it's called the make it better agency and so it's a it's a foundation organization for where i serve as a mentor for other kids with osteosarcoma um, and I communicate with them and answer their questions. And even if it's just meeting with someone who my orthopedic surgeon knows in the hospital who has this cancer or is going, thinking about a surgery that I had, it's just I like being able to help them as many people helped me. Well, and that's... ultimately, I kind of know now what I want to do in the future, which is actually go into orthopedic oncology. Uh, that's so fantastic. That is fantastic, Andrew. Other people's stories help you through your story. Your story, you're now paying it forward and you're helping others with your experience. This is Lee Habib. We've been talking to Andrew McCaffrey, a boy and a young man who lost a leg to cancer, but is just living and powering himself through it. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. Thank you. You bet. This is Our American Stories, and we love sharing stories with you, particularly from our loyal listeners. But before we do, and we have a really good one, it's time for Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. (laughs) It's a good thing the Dr. Seuss books come with pictures, because otherwise I'd have no clue what he was talking about. The most suspicious thing you can bring on an airplane is a parachute. Kim Jong-un must really look strange to the people of North Korea since he's the only overweight person in the entire country. (laughs) Hurricanes are becoming so powerful and violent that they should be named after bad guys, not just random names pulled out of thin air. Hurricane Patricia doesn't sound nearly as scary as Hurricane Hitler. When I drive with my left hand, the lives of the people in my car are held by something I can't even write my name with. 
The question, where are you, has probably never been asked in sign language. The two main characters of the show VeggieTales are a tomato and a cucumber. Neither are technically vegetables. The tallest person on Earth has been the same height as every person on Earth at some point in his life. A birth control pill pack is like an advent calendar for a woman's period. I bet giraffes don't even know what farts smell like. If self-driving cars kick in fast enough, women in Saudi Arabia may never be able to drive. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. My car is eight years old and just hit 186,000 miles. So it took my car eight years to travel as far as light does in one second. Condoms are one of the most environmentally friendly things invented by man. A single one has the potential to eliminate the carbon emissions of an entire human over the course of their lifetime. What if our use of emojis gradually becomes so extensive that we actually circle back to writing in hieroglyphics? <laughs> what if hieroglyphics are ancient emojis used by the Egyptians? Warm beer and cold coffee are both the same temperature. When you want to make sure a piece of paper doesn't get folded, you put it in something called a folder. I wonder if cats think that we're cleaning our ice cream. The only time I've ever used my panic button on my car keychain is when I accidentally pressed it, causing me to panic. If you're over 30 years old, you are alive before every dog in the world. Shower thoughts. <laughs> Bravo. Well done, Jesse. Well, well done. done. <laughs> and now, as we, to- as we promised... A story from one of our listeners. And today we hear from Stephen Murray, who sent us this deeply personal story. Let's take a listen. My name is Stephen, and uh, I'm going to give you a little detail of how my life has taken a 180, they say. Anyhow, when I was growing up, I was always a young man that was always the last one to be picked because I was fat, and I had no abilities to really do anything in life and everybody knew that so when they had uh, everybody line up to be picked uh, like on a baseball or football team I was always the last one to be picked and uh, the last guy that would pick me said no I don't want him you take him now that that's the type of life that I had for growing up through school and things of that nature and as I started getting older um, I got into the drinking and the drugging because that was my friend it never give me any issues except keep me where where I thought I would be. And then the girls came along because you have the booze and the dope and you thought you had a hold of life. Well, through that time, uh, I knew I knew the truth because my parents always embraced that. I mean, I had a wonderful home life and everything, but I seemed to struggle. And uh, my folks always took me to Sunday school, but I I don't know. It just didn't didn't resonate with me. But anyhow, as I grew up, the booze and the dope and the girls always seemed to hang and be part of my life. And I went to school, but I never really learned anything, so to say, that would impact me and allow me to prosper in life. And with that, I I continued in the booze and the dope. And as I got older, I got into more heavier drugs. And uh, my older brother, Ed, he would grow weed uh, from... 800 to 1,000 plants a year, and he had a really wild lifestyle. 
Well, one day I went over and picked up a, a bag of dope, cocaine, and I was driving home. And I saw my brother in a distance standing with a man who I knew knew Jesus, not religion. He had a relationship with Christ. And as I was going out, I pulled over the side of the road, a little town and rescue there where we lived. And sure enough, he was sharing Jesus with my brother because we used to party together. And as I was listening, my inner man, my spirit, my soul was listening to what this man had to say. My flesh was telling me, let's go to the house because I had the dope. But my inner man was tuning in, and he was hearing the truth. So I embraced my brother and left. And as I got to my home about four or five miles away, as I was pulling into the driveway, I I had that truck, uh, four-wheel drive Bonanza, that had the large gas gauge and the large speedometer. Maybe the older folks would know what I'm talking about. And as I reached down to turn off my ignition, the, the gas gauge was sitting on empty And as I was turning off the ignition, the spirit of the living God started speaking to my inner man, my soul. He said, Stephen, that's your life. It's empty. I'm thinking, wow, how can it be empty? I have a pocket full of dope, and i got money and girls and a place to live. I'm doing good, good job. And as I'm sitting there, the evil one, the devil, whoever you want to call him, he starts rolling in the cab of that truck. He says, Stephen, you're a drunk and a druggie and a screw-up. This is your life. Accept it. And just like I'm talking to somebody, I I heard it. And as I'm sitting there, the spirit of the living God starts speaking to my heart again. He says, Stephen, if you let me into your life, I'm going to get you off empty. But you have to open up the door to your heart. The doorknob's on the inside. I thought, wow, this this is real. So I got out of my truck and I went straight into the restroom at my house, the bathroom, and I took the bag of cocaine out and I flushed it. I knew right then if I didn't make that decision, I would not like the outcome because I knew without a doubt this was the truth. And I got into my refrigerator and started pouring out all the booze and all the beer, got in my cabinets and started pouring everything out that had a hold of me. The pornography went out. Everything went out the back door took the foil off the windows because it was a flop house. I, I liked it dark in there because once you get the partying scene going, you didn't want the sunlight to come up to shut you down. So as I took everything and I threw it out the back door and I got on my knees. And when I come back in there, I got on my knees and I said, Lord God, forgive me of my unrighteousness towards you. I'm asking you to take a hold of my life and do something with it. Well, that was 28 years ago. 28 years ago, I was a drunk, druggy, screw-up, didn't care about life, and didn't care what anybody else thought about it. And through that time, I uh, had a woman there that stuck with me, and I, I married her 27 years ago, and she's still with me today. But anyhow, God said he was going to get my life off empty, and he has. Today, being illiterate, which I'm not anymore because I started reading the Bible. And I told God, I said, God, you want me to read your word. You have to teach me to read. And I started learning how to read through the word of God. And now I'm a published author, a published songwriter, the Barnes and Nobles, Amazon.com. And and, um, I've been married, like I said, the same woman for 27 years. I didn't have to explain my past to her because she lived it with me. And she's stuck with me. 
over all these years. And today, people don't laugh at what God's doing in my life because they've seen a drastic change. I'm not going to say my gas gauge is on full, but it's not sitting on empty anymore. And what a great story. Thank you, Stephen, for that. It doesn't get more personal or more beautiful than that. And we want to hear your stories, too. 844-627-8255. About anything that matters to you. Funny, serious, in between. 844-627-8255. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this week is National Infertility Awareness Week, and we're bringing you moving stories about infertility throughout the entire week. And today, it's a story written by Leah Weitz Cohen that is titled, quote, Facing Infertility, and our own Faith Garcia performed it for us. Let's take a listen to Leah's story. I hardly knew her. Miriam was a 30-something professional We sat in the same office and had worked side by side for about a year. She was always very nice, intelligent, and charming. But we were never close since she lived in another community and we didn't really travel in the same circles. I guess we were just so busy with our own lives and since our lives were so different, they never really coincided. We just never had all that much in common. After all, her whole world seemed to revolve around her work. Whereas my career was my family with the office but a small part of my life. I'd always thought she was happy. Everything in her life was going just as she'd planned. She loved her job and was advancing up the corporate ladder. She had a caring and successful husband, and they had just bought a beautiful home. Everything was going right. Everything was perfect. Or so I thought. And then one day... Out of the clear blue, as we stood around the coffee machine, she suddenly burst into tears. Startled, I tried to calm her, and she, when she felt a bit better, she poured her heart out to me. Everything was going right in her life, except for one thing. She was not getting pregnant. Miriam told me she and her husband had been trying to conceive, never expecting any problems, But after trying for over two years, nothing had happened. At first, they'd laugh it off as work-induced stress. But after a while, they realized it was a more serious problem. And so, while everything else was going so well, this one thing certainly was not. And this one thing was what they desired more than anything else. I thought of nothing else. She recalled to me, I would be sitting in a meeting with a client and would be thinking about having babies. I remember once one of our co-workers made an innocent remark about going away for the weekend with her husband and leaving her kids with her mother. You see, she was nervous about the kids missing her and her mother's ability to cope with the three little ones. She smiled at me and said, you're so lucky you don't have these problems. I gritted my teeth smiled at her, and then went to the bathroom and cried for two hours. 
I felt so terrible that someone said that to her and then realized how it could have so easily have been me. What had I said in the past? Or how had I been insensitive? It never even occurred to me that this was a painful topic. Never having had an, any inkling that she struggled with fertility problems, in truth, never having realized that anyone struggled with fertility problems, I was not aware of what a painful issue it was in so many lives. I was taken aback. Here, I had been working next to this young woman for a year. We chatted casually about all kinds of things, and I had had the feeling that her life was proceeding just as she'd planned. Yet, all along, she'd been feeling deep down miserable and just hiding it well. And then one day, over coffee, she could keep it in no longer. Out it poured, and to someone she barely knew. At first, honestly, I didn't know how to react. Ironically, I had always been a bit intimidated by her. Miriam was a real powerhouse. Next to her, such a successful career woman, I felt like an ordinary housewife. Little did I know that it was what I had that she valued the most. But Miriam seemed to need someone to confide in. Someone objective and somewhat removed from her personal life. And I had a responsibility to listen. While I did not know why she picked me, I figured that if she had, I owed it to her to try and help in whatever way I could. She told me she had started seeing a medical professional, a fertility specialist, who kept sending her for more and more tests, with no results. I was overwhelmed. I would go to the doctor's office to do an ultrasound test to see when I was ovulating and then rush to work. Many times I came late and though the boss was very understanding, I felt bad having to explain to him and to all of my coworkers why I was late and often grumpy. And then when I started on medication, I felt worse physically as well. And after all that, I would get my period. I was a total nervous wreck. But just getting to a doctor, she explained, is not enough. Apparently, each doctor has a specific specialty, and a doctor who helps one couple may not really be able to help another. Miriam said she's met many couples who spent endless hours pursuing unsuitable doctors and inappropriate, time-consuming, anxiety-provoking treatments. Sometimes they would wait for months just to get to see a particular doctor, only to be told that they should stop trying that they were too old to conceive. You just don't know what to do, who to talk to, she said. And I couldn't speak about it with anyone around me. My immediate family felt bad for us, didn't want to bring up the subject at all. My younger sister was wrapped up in her own kids, and it was obviously too personal a matter to discuss with professional colleagues. All my friends either had their own children to keep them busy or weren't even interested in becoming pregnant. And they certainly didn't want to hear about my troubles. I felt all alone, as though I was the only person in the world with such problems. I had no one to turn to. Well, I was certainly flattered that she decided to confide in me, a virtual stranger. It must have been an act of sheer desperation on her part. In retrospect, of course, I should have realized how overwhelmingly difficult it must have been 
to have trouble conceiving, especially in our community. After all, Judaism places incredible value on family life and raising children. I'm ashamed to admit I had not really given the whole subject of infertility much thought. I guess for me, I had just taken it for granted that people had babies when they chose to. You see, it had never really occurred to me that maybe some people that I thought just must not have wanted children might have very badly wanted them and just couldn't have them. I never thought to be sensitive when meeting with someone and immediately asking, so how many kids do you want to have? I started wondering how many people might have extremely painful stories to relay about my thoughtlessness. The first thing I did after Miriam and I spoke was to research the computer to learn more about infertility. Sadly, Miriam and her husband are far from the only ones. They are just one of thousands of couples who experience problems conceiving. In fact, about one in seven of all couples may have problems with fertility at some point during their married life. And it appears that the numbers only increase as the couples get older. This means that around 15% of couples may not become pregnant after trying for 12 months. Some will subsequently conceive without any intervention, but most will require some medical assistance. It is unfortunately a rather widespread problem affecting many. And here I was, basically unaware. A few months later after the coffee machine incident, Miriam arrived in the office one day looking much more at peace than I had seen her in a long time. She had finally found a medical professional whom she trusted and who was a source of tremendous emotional support and comfort for her and her husband and was guiding them through the entire process of fertility treatments. He was helping them put things into perspective and regain control of their lives. With this positive feedback she was now receiving, she was continuing treatment with greater confidence, and a renewed sense of hope. Miriam continues to thank me for being there when she needed me. The truth is, I have learned a lot from her and have a lot to thank her for. I have learned to be more aware, to open my ears and my heart to others. And if someone should choose to confide in me and to express her feelings, or if someone just appears to be overwhelmed and in need of some support, I will try my best to listen to let her speak freely of her frustrations and disappointments. Because of Miriam, I've started volunteering at a center for couples with fertility problems, sharing with these people their hopes and concerns. There are hundreds of couples like Miriam and her husband, most suffering in pain and silence. They may well be our neighbors, our friends, people we go to synagogue with, and we may often be oblivious or insensitive or too absorbed in our own lives to share their worries. Through this incident, I have become determined to help in any way I can. And not just by providing information about infertility to those who suffer from it, but to those who fortunately don't, so that they will hopefully become a source of support and strength to those who do rather than a source of pain and sorrow. Most importantly, I've learned to count my blessings 
and never take anything for granted. And that's a superb read. Thank you, Faith, and what a great piece by Leah White's Cohen. National Infertility Awareness Week. Leah was writing that about a friend, and she was writing it for anyone who's experienced infertility and the battles and the consequences of infertility. Leah's story, her friend's story, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and on this day in history dark side of the moon it went to number one in 1973 and I know you're wondering this is our American stories what are you doing spending an hour because we're going to spend an hour on this record why an hour on a British record well we make exceptions for British records we did it with Robert Plant and we've done it before we're going to do it with Dave Clark five too because what a story about that band's life but you know the British music experience It's one and the same. Robert Plant came here, well, two times to discover his identity. The Beatles think about their early music. My goodness, it's Chuck Berry music, for goodness sake. The Rolling Stones, where are the Rolling Stones without Muddy Waters? And so for that reason, we dig in to Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Here's Jesse with a story. Dark Side of the Moon was Pink Floyd's eighth album, released on March 1st, 1973 by Harvest Records, a label the band is still represented by in Europe to this day. The album was an immediate commercial and critical success, topping the Billboard chart for a week and remaining in the chart from 1973 to 1988. With more than 45 million copies sold, it's Pink Floyd's most commercially successful album and one of the best-selling albums of all time. It's actually listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for being on the charts longer than any other album in history, namely 591 consecutive weeks, or 11.4 years on the Billboard Top 200, and a total of about 14 entire years, or 741 weeks, and a staggering 26 years in some Billboard chart or another. It's been remastered and re-released twice, and covered in its entirety by several other acts. It's produced two singles, Money and Us and Them. It's the band's most popular album among fans and critics, being ranked as one of the greatest albums of all time. Here's Pink Floyd's Roger Waters and David Gilmore. It was one of those really good moments that most bands do experience, where everyone is on side and everyone likes the idea, and there's some sort of agreement as to more or less who's going to do what. Dark Side of the Moon started in a rehearsal room in Bermondsey, I think, that belonged, a warehouse belonged to the Rolling Stones, where we did some um, sort of jamming, writing, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure how much writing happened there. You know, let's play E minor and A for an hour or two. And, oh, that sounds all right. That'll take up five minutes. The making of The Dark Side of the Moon is perhaps one of the all-time great recording stories. It charts the journey of a band who previously pushed the boundaries of what was possible in the recording studio. Sid Barrett had departed the band in the late 60s after suffering for years with ongoing mental illness. Bass player Roger Waters had taken up the lyric writing mantle in his absence and the overall direction of the group, while occasional lead guitarist Dave Gilmore joined as a full-time member, cementing a solid lineup that included Nick Mason on drums and Richard Wright on keyboards and synthesizers. 
Between May of 1972 and January 1973, Pink Floyd spent pretty much all of their time at Abbey Road Studios, the former home of the Beatles, and still a hotbed of innovation with its world-class recording equipment. The music and the lyrics for the entire album were written during a seven-week period in which the band were preparing for a tour where they desperately wanted to premiere new material. Here's David Gilmore on the unique mix of audio that he and the rest of the band would apply in the production of Dark Side of the Moon. The original Dark Side of the Moon that everyone knows and loves so well is actually third generation tape, most of it. Most of the drums and bass and rhythm guitars were all bounced into a two-track mix. And this mix, we've gone back to the very original tapes, synchronized them all together, and everything is original takes and a better sound quality. It's being remixed to be close to the original, but to be in the quadraphonic SACD format. Roger Waters wrote the lyrics to Breathe and all of the songs on this particular Pink Floyd album. Here's Roger Waters talking about the lyrics of Breathe. I listened to it again recently and it uh, always amazes me uh, that, I that I got away with it really because it's so sort of lower sixth, uh, you know. Um, breathe, breathe in the air, don't be afraid to care. In fact, I think within the context of the music and within the context of the piece as a whole, people are prepared to uh, accept that simple exhortation, to be prepared to stand your ground and attempt to live your life in an authentic way. Pink Floyd's keyboardist and vocalist, Richard Wright, recalls a chord from this track that he lifted from another famous musician at the time. There's a certain chord which is That is totally down to a chord I had heard on actually Miles Davis' album, Kind of Blue, which is um, that chord. That chord I just loved. And when we're doing Breathe, we got to G, I got to G, and how do you get to E again? Well, again, normally you go... But um, I remember this chord, and I remember working it out at home, listening to the record, and I just thought... Even though Dark Side of the Moon was one of the highest-selling worldwide albums of all time, it would only win one Grammy Award, and it won for Best Engineered Album. The engineer from this album was Alan Parsons, who produced Abbey Road and Let It Be for the Beatles. He's also the same Alan Parsons of The Alan Parsons Project. Here, Alan lets us hear the isolated vocal tracks from Breathe. Look around, choose your own ground. There's also a harmony part. So long you live. How you fly. That's, that's it on its own. Back to the band. There's a, two organ parts which have come in now. On the Run is the third track on Dark Side of the Moon. It's heavy on the use of synthesizers and experimental recording techniques. This is where you start to get the feel, even to this day, that Dark Side was and continues to be a concept album. A sonic experimentation 
music of the future, well-engineered and carefully constructed. And when we come back, more on Dark Side of the Moon. It went to number one in the United States on this day in history, in 1973. And by the way, our This Days in History, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, one of the finer places in this country to study the finer things in life. When we come back, more with Jesse and Dark Side of the Moon. This is Our American Stories, and now we return to the story of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It went to number one in the United States on this day in history. On the Run is the third track on Dark Side of the Moon. It's heavy on the use of synthesizers and experimental recording techniques. This is where you start to get the feel, even to this day, that Dark Side was and continues to be a concept album. A sonic experimentation. Music of the future. Well-engineered and carefully constructed. Here's David Gilmore and the rest of the band talking about the importance of sound mix back in the days long before digital editing. They would record live and edit reels and reels of tape with razor blades. This section in particular, the, the, the travel section, the uh, on the run section, um, I think was pretty complicated. A, a lot of a lot of hands on on deck. You'd always want to put more things on than you had tracks for, so tracks would very suddenly change from one thing to a different thing. All of us are on the desk with our fingers on the faders. But that's the way it was because uh, we didn't have automation in those days. A mix in those days was a performance, every bit as much as doing a gig. It's one thing actually that we've kind of lost in the, in the, in the modern age. Here's David Gilmore and Richard Wright with a demonstration on how they brought that space-age sound to an album that none of them were actually crazy about at the time. I think we were none of us that happy with it as a, as a piece. And when we also had this synthesizer, I just plugged this up and started playing one sequence on it. And uh, Roger immediately pricked up his ears and thought, that sounded good, and came out and we started mucking with it together. And... Um, um, and he put in a new sequence of notes and it all developed out of that. A series of notes played in slowly, triggering a noise generator and oscillators, and then just speed it up, you know. Now you've got it, basically. course immediately sounded much more exciting and new than what we are currently doing. That audio engineer we heard from earlier, Alan Parsons, the only guy to actually win a Grammy for Dark Side of the Moon, one of the top three selling albums of all time in world history, well, he was the man behind the iconic sounds of the clocks leading into the next track, Pink Floyd's Time. Dark Side was really the, f- the first proper engineering job I'd been given with, uh, with the Floyd, so I was pretty much put in at the deep end. I was commissioned to um, record s- some uh, clocks for a sound effects record for um, the very early days of Quadraphonic. And when we were doing time, he suggested we might like to have these clocks. My memory of it is just this room full of 
tapes rolling around because it was without any sort of com computer help everything had to be done manually getting all the clocks to chime at the, at the right time and that was a, a process of uh, just finding a particular moment on the multi-track tape where all the chiming would happen and then back timing the, uh, all the quarter inch originals which contained the each of the clocks and then the, the very critical thing of tapes starting at a specific moment which is all done with hand signs and stopwatches Here once again is sound engineer Alan Parsons letting us hear some of the isolated tracks from time. Got the uh, girls making their first appearance here. That's unprocessed. And um, we actually put this effect called a frequency translator on them, which made them sound like this. Even though Roger Waters wrote the lyrics to Time and all the other songs, Time was the only song on the album credited to all four members of the band. It's a song about how time can slip by, but many people don't really realize it until it's too late. Waters got the idea when he realized that he was no longer preparing for anything in life, but was already right in the middle of it. I suddenly realized then that year that uh, life was already happening. I think it's because my mother was so obsessed with education and the idea that childhood and adolescence and, well, everything was about preparing for a life that was going to start later. Um, and I suddenly realised that life wasn't going to start later, that it had, you know, it starts at dot and it happens all the time and that at any point you can grasp the reins and start guiding your own destiny and that was a big revelation to me at the end of time we're suddenly taken back to a reprise of the album's second track breathe here's david gilmore with just his guitar performing decades later with that same unmistakable voice and those same angelic chords home home again i like to be here when I can When I come home Cold and tired It's good to warm my bones Beside the fire 
across the fields, the tolling of the iron bell calls the faithful to their knees to hear the softly spoken magic spells. After an epic track like Time, followed by a flashback to Breathe, the band would then choose to take the album to an open space for instrumentals and improvisational vocals. Here's keyboardist Richard Wright on composing the chords that lead into the great gig in the sky. The band basically wanted another four or five minutes of music, and we thought it could be an instrumental. I think I just, as I always have done, is I sat at the piano and, and, I, and those first two chords came. This song began life as a Richard Wright chord progression known as the Mortality Sequence, or the Religion Song. During 1972, it was performed live as a simple organ instrumental accompanied by soft-spoken samples from the Bible. When Pink Floyd came to record Dark Side in 1973, the lead instrument had been switched to a piano. Various sound effects were mixed over the track, including recordings of NASA astronauts communicating on space missions, but none were satisfactory. Finally, a couple of weeks before the album was due to be finished, the band thought of having a female singer wail over the music. Here's the members of Pink Floyd describing how they found singer Claire Torrey to sing the part. No idea whose idea it was to get somebody, a female singer in, but Alan Parsons knew Claire Torrey and had been working with her and said, why don't you try her? She just went in there and improvised over it. Yeah, that was amazing. That was fantastic. That was done while we were mixing. We knew what we wanted, not exactly musically but we knew that we wanted someone to just improvise over this piece so we directed her we said well think about death think about horror think whatever and just go and sing and my memory is that she went out in the studio and did it very very quickly and then came back in and said I'm really sorry about this very embarrassed and we in fact were sitting in the studio saying this is wonderful and of course, it's absolutely brilliant. Both both Rick's um, piano and organ work and Claire's singing is just incredibly moving. And here, once again, is sound engineer extraordinaire Alan Parsons to isolate the audio, giving us that rare glimpse into the raw structure of a masterpiece. At the, end, at the very end of this, I remember we increased the echo slowly. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the story behind the story of Pink Floyd's 1973 album, Dark Side of the Moon, one of the highest-selling albums of all time, at upwards of 45 million copies worldwide. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and now we return to the story of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It went to number one in the United States on this day in history. Claire Torrey, who was a 25-year-old songwriter and session vocalist at the time, got a call one night from a friend who worked at the legendary Abbey Road Studios in London. I knew nothing about this. Uh, I just had a call from this guy that worked at Abbey Road called Dennis, who said, rang me up and said, was I free to do a session? And the band were there, and they proceeded to explain to me that they were doing this album, it was nearly finished, and that the concept of the album, they played with the backing track. So I started off by going, oh baby, baby, yeah, yeah, baby, baby, which is what one tended to, to do, for sort of scat, sort of singing. And they said, oh no, 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 we don't want any words. Well, that really stumped me. It sort of happened when I, I thought, well, I really don't know what they want, I don't know, but uh, okay, best feet forward. After a first and second take, Claire Torrey's confidence was starting to fade because she wasn't getting any feedback from the band. They said, well, I think we, we'll do another take. And so I did another one. And then David said, I think you could improve upon that. And I didn't think I could. And so I started a third track. And in the middle, I stopped and I said, look, I really think that you've got enough because it felt it felt fairly complete you know so um i went into the control room and they played it and alan sort of used you know put a bit of this and um not a lot was said and i said oh well well thank you very much um goodbye and left and i was convinced it would never see the light today because they hadn't commented they hadn't made any do you know what i mean they hadn't said great awful Nothing. I honestly thought they didn't like it. And uh, I didn't give it much thought because I never thought it, anybody would hear it. The fact of the matter was that Gilmore, Waters, and the rest of the band couldn't believe what they had just captured on two and a half takes. Released as a single, Money became the band's first hit in the United States, reaching number 10 in Cashbox magazine and number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. The demo tracks for the song, including some of the sound effects, were recorded in a makeshift recording studio Roger Waters had in his garden shed. I would have remembered um, writing money as a sort of very bluesy thing. And here's Roger Waters more recently with one of his trademark licks in Money. I can't, I can't sing it up in that register, but Money. Get away. We'll get a good job with Four-star daydream, think about me and football team. 
and there's a very kind of transatlantic, you know, bluesy sort of twang to it all. Listening to the original demo, it's not like that at all. It's all very kind of prissy and very English. Money not only put Dark Side of the Moon in the spotlight of the music world, it catapulted Pink Floyd into the superstar stratosphere. They were now official rock royalty. But that kind of stardom always comes with a price. Here's David Fick from Rolling Stone magazine and Pink Floyd about the fame they achieved from their big hit, Money. Money is an amazing single because it's about the very thing that it became. It's about success. Something certainly did the trick and it moved us up into a super league, I suppose you might say, um, which brought with it some great joy, some pride and some problems. Of course it changed our life. Um, we were now a big rock and roll band playing in stadiums. You don't know what you're in it for anymore. You know, you were in it to achieve massive success and get rich and famous and all these other things that go along with it. And uh, when they're all suddenly done, you're going, hmm, well, why? What next? It's not to say we didn't do some good work, but the good work that we did was actually all about a lot of the negative aspects of what went on after we'd achieved um, the goal. Studio time while recording Dark Side of the Moon would typically be interrupted for one of two reasons. Either soccer or Monty Python television broadcasts. In fact, Pink Floyd were such Python fans that they used some of the money they made from the initial success of the album to help film Monty Python's The Holy Grail. Old woman! Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you ma'am. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. Us and Them was written by Roger Waters and Richard Wright with lyrics by Waters, and it's sung by David Gilmore with harmonies by Wright. The song is 7 minutes 51 seconds in length, making it the longest on the album. Us and Them was released as the second single from Dark Side of the Moon in the United States, peaking at number 72 on the Cashbox Top 100 Singles chart in March of 74. It's a song rather quiet in tone and dynamics with a prominent jazz influence. Here's David Frick from Rolling Stone magazine on the simplicity of this song. The simplicity of the Floyd is really almost hard to talk about because it is so simple. Um, Nick Mason playing very slowly, you know, exact, without a lot of overly frilly percussion flourishes. Um, Richard's touch on piano and organ, very gentle, very soft, um, but also exact and just, you know, hitting the notes Right. It was always about leaving space.
Dave and Rick, their harmony vocals on it are really very affecting. They, uh, funny enough, they have very similar voices. Both their voices are a big factor in Dark Side of the Moon, the way they, the way they blend. And here again is audio engineer Alan Parsons with the audio dissection. That's Dave and Rick together. And then Rick does another part below that, which you can hear now. And then the girls are also joining in. Any Color You'd Like is the eighth track on Dark Side of the Moon as an instrumental by David Gilmore, Richard Wright, and Nick Mason. It serves as an upbeat transition from Us and Them into the ninth track on the album, Brain Damage. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the story behind the story of Pink Floyd's 1973 album, Dark Side of the Moon, one of the highest-selling albums of all time at upwards of 45 million copies worldwide. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now we return to the story of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It went to number one on this day in history in 1973. Any Color You'd Like is the eighth track on Dark Side of the Moon as an instrumental by David Gilmour, Richard Wright, and Nick Mason. It serves as an upbeat transition from Us and Them into the ninth track on the album, Brain Damage. It was sung on record by Roger Waters with harmonies by David Gilmour, who would continue to sing it on his solo tours. The song is somewhat slow, with a guitar arpeggio pattern similar to the Beatles' Dear Prudence. It's in the key of D major and features a recurring lyrical pattern and chorus. The song seemed to be partially inspired by their former band member, Sid Barrett, who had endured a mental breakdown. Here's David Gilmore, Roger Waters, and the rest of the band looking back at this album in all its glory. Obviously, a bit to do with Sid, and I think it's about defending the notion of being different. The lunatic is on the grass. The lunatic is on the grass. Remembering games and daisy chains and laughs Got to keep the loonies on the path The lunatic is in the hall The lunatic is in the hall The paper holds their folded faces to the floor And every day the paper boy brings more And if the damned 
fundamental question that's facing us all is whether or not we're capable of dealing with the whole question of us and them. What he was feeling as an individual mirrored almost exactly what a lot of other people were feeling at the time in their own lives. There's no question in my mind that, that Dark Side of the Moon was one of the most important artistic statements of the last 50 years probably. It's touched very many people all over the world in ways that could not simply be put down to the fact that, oh, they're nice tunes, and oh, I like that bit at the end. I mean, it, this was a complete experience. It was, a, it was actually a really grim time, and he wrote a very grim record, but did it with music that was extremely uplifting, compelling and bewitching. I think it was a very, very happy and creative and enjoyable time when we made this album. It was probably the most focused moment in our career in terms of all of us working together as a band. I'd love to have been a person who could sit back with his headphones on and listen to that the whole way through for the first time. I mean, I never had that experience, <laughs> but uh, it would have been nice. The thing that's often missed is the fact that basically people are responding to it on an emotional level, and that's what makes great records. It's driven by emotion. There's nothing plastic about it, you know, there's, no, there's nothing contrived about it. And, and I think that's what has given it its, or maybe one of the things that's given it its longevity. album comes to an end in eclipse with lyrics echoing the book of ecclesiastes we rise over the top of a crescendo only to start back at the very beginning to the haunting rhythm of a beating heart and then there's this little voice there is no dark side in the moon really matter of fact it's all dark. 
what was that? Well, when Pink Floyd recorded Dark Side of the Moon, they inserted a lot of random spoken word over a lot of instrumental sections that were so loud you could often just barely hear what the person was saying. There is no dark side in the moon, really. This guy at the very end of the album was the front doorman at Abbey Road Studios in London. Here's Roger Waters and the rest of the guys talking about the interview process that they used to bring this spooky spoken word element into the album. I've no idea why it did to, to have um, voices on this thing. So the only thing that was clever about it at all was how to do it, so not, not to have an interview. Devised probably in the canteen and um, done later that evening. So I wrote out a bunch of cards and, with um, questions on them. I think what the voices did on the record very well was they, they actually brought out the dark side. They were, in a way, the dark side of the record. First of all, we used a number of people who were in the studio with us, so we used three or four of our road crew. I aren't frightened of dying at all, because when you gotta go, you gotta go. The Irish doorman here, Jerry. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it, you gotta go sometime. Wings were recording in here at the same time, so we actually used Paul and Linda, Henry McCulloch. I don't know, I was really drunk at the time. It's the people who are not used to being interviewed who come up with the stuff. I think they started off with, what's your favourite colour, you know, and, and your favourite food, and, when, and none of which was just to get people there. And then they went into, when was the last time you were violent? This was the good bit. Was, when was the last time you were violent? And then you'd, take, you'd answer it and then take the next card, and the next card said, were you in the right? Yeah, <laughs> I was in the right. Yes, absolutely in the right. I certainly was in the right. Yeah, I was definitely in the right. That geezer was cruising for a bruising. And uh, this remarkable roadie called Roger the Hat. If I participate in this effort, I hope I'm going to get my gold disc at the end of it. Imagine that. Oh. They were trying to track him down to do the cards and by the time they got hold of him somebody the, the cards had gone missing I don't know where they'd gone so uh, Roger Waters actually ended up doing it he actually did do that one as an interview right so do you ever <laughs> think you're going mad Roger um I once reached a stage in my life where I was completely convinced that I'd gone over the brink or well, that's what I cared to call it to call Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon an album almost seems to sell it short it's a seamless work of art. I mean, the whole thing is one giant track. You're just supposed to listen to the whole album from beginning to end. You don't just you know, listen to individual tracks of Pink Floyd. That's why it's kind of annoying to listen to it on the radio because the DJs inevitably have to start and stop the tracks. Nothing wrong with that, but Pink Floyd should always be listened to, at least Dark Side of the Moon, in its entirety. And if you've got kids that are just getting interested in music, this is an excellent place to start them on the discovery of rock and roll. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And that's Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It went to number one on this day in history in 1973. And by the way, our This Days in History, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. One of the finer places in this country to study the finer things in life. Arts, history, you'll learn the Constitution there. Heck, you'll even read Plato, and you'll even read Aeschylus and Shakespeare. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. And that's simply by you going to hillsdale.edu. Twelve great online courses, full courses are there for you and your family to enjoy. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
All you see is all your life will ever be.